Well, it's great to see you. Uh, thank you for making the uh, time this weekend to be together. And uh, a particular welcome to Alan Palmer. I'll introduce Alan a little bit later. He's going to do the bulk of our um, input today. Um, <clears throat> over these uh, gatherings that we've been doing, we, we wanted them to be a a follow-up to our Courage Conference. Um, Many of you will remember our Courage Conference last year in a friend's house in London uh, where we were really trying to um, stimulate or launch a bit of a sense of needing to have a culture of courage amongst us and courage takes all sorts of forms. And so we've been going through uh, since then these gatherings where we're looking at different aspects of courage. And this time we wanted to look at having the courage to rest um, which kind of sounds like a bit of a contradiction until you first, until we dig into it as we will, as we will see later. You find that Jesus often, when he was faced with the extraordinary demands of leadership and ministry, he did completely the unexpected thing very often and withdrew to a quiet place or he did something that was completely, uh, not, um, productive at the time in order that he might be more fruitful later. So there's things we can learn from the pattern of how Jesus lived. But there's also something, Uh, really fundamental and foundational to our very faith. And that's what I want to look at in this first session, which is a little bit more of a sort of a doctrinal session for us just to have a really good grasp of what it is to actually have courage to rest in the grace of God. And I don't mean rest as in sort of relaxed and sort of can't really be bothered and, oh, well, yeah, never mind, not that sort of a rest, not on a sun lounger kind of rest, but a rest that actually thinks... This is a settled matter. I settled. So I'm at rest about this issue. Now that's a different kind of rest. It's a very powerful rest. Um, sometimes we can go through times where we have tr- a troubled mind or a troubled heart. Um, recently I found just myself, I, I had a troubled mind, a troubled heart about issues between me and God. I was trying to think, Lord, am I, am I really clean in this area? Am I really pleasing you in this area? And, and things can get into your mind and you just, it disturbs your rest. And actually to be able to come back again and again, to the rest that the grace of God gives us is really important. Um, Martin Luther said, it's extremely necessary that we come to know this doctrine well and constantly inculcate or give attention to it, for it is delicate and easily bruised. And we can, no matter how long we've been Christians, um, I, I think that the, our enemy, the devil, will constantly go at the very foundation of what it is to be a Christian, which is that we have been accepted by grace into the family of God through the death of Christ on the cross. No merit on our part deserving it. A total, lavish, undeserved, free gift of life which we access simply by believing in the one who gave himself for us. That will constantly be the target of our enemy who constantly wants to disturb our rest and our peace. And so we have to have the courage to say, this is a settled issue. Say what you like to me. This is a settled issue. So I want to try and dig into that a little bit this morning in the time we have together. I've just got to see how much time I have got. Okay. 
Dear Lord, have mercy. Right, we'll do what we can. Right, sorry that weather, I'll probably forget and carry on. Uh, so if you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 4, I'll just try and uh, look at uh, the one who really is uh, a pattern for all of us, Abraham. And just look uh, at these verses, Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gave life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father, I pray that in these uh, moments we have together, you would grant me uh, your Holy Spirit's help. Uh, These things are such big things, Lord, and I feel very inadequate to even grapple with these things. They're huge. They're globally significant things, Lord, affecting the the whole history of mankind. And we want to, and yet we want to give attention to these things that you've entrusted to us. So I pray, please help me. Holy Spirit, rest on us. You know the needs amongst us this morning. You know where we need to be um, uh, given courage to rest in your grace. And so I, I ask you for help, Lord, uh, and that you would be you would be glorified and we would be strengthened and given great courage in what you've done for us and in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a few things to pick out from this. Um, uh, the first thing is there's a, there's a corporate application and uh, there should be some power. There we are. Uh, the first one is um, coming up there. Well, the next one, there we are. That we are uh, a family of grace. In uh, verse 16 it says, Abraham who is the father of us all. There's a collective importance to 
to this doctrine of grace for us as a family of churches. It's the unifying DNA, as it were, that it's the value, it's the thing that holds us together, it's the, it's the core foundation upon which everything else is built. And it's ever so important that we, you know, we've got a, a big vision that we believe God's given to us of planting churches, not only in this nation, but many other nations. And there's lots of precious values we believe about church life and things we've learned. We believe we learned from scripture that are New Testament values. And we want to see all this uh, spread throughout the earth as much as God gives us grace and as much as whatever our part is in that, along with all of the, the rest of the body of Christ, God's got a part for us to play and he's given us a very big vision. But it's ever so important that we understand we're, our, our vision statement even is to be globally fruitful, crossing all boundaries to reach the nations, making disciples and planting locally led churches. That's what we're about. But brothers and sisters, we're not multiplying a franchise. We're not even selling a brand of church. We're not trying to say, well, if you do it this way, this is what it's really all about. We want to multiply this that we've discovered. It's not a product. What God has called us to is to extend, with his help, his family. It's a family business. Abraham's the father of us all. And that means those who in like manner to to Abraham, through faith, simple faith, believing whatever God said, Abraham believed him, that's why it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith is the thing that God sees as the the thing that gives us access to him. And just like Abraham did did, uh, believe God, so in like manner we've received adoption as sons through the forgiveness of sins by faith, believing by faith in the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and that is the big picture that needs to go around the globe that it's it's a family business god is around uh, about building uh, a family it means that we desire to see thousands of people as we were just praying thousands of people born into god's family in the same way that abraham was born into god's family by grace through faith Verse 22, his faith was counted as righteousness. It's faith that brings people into God's family. Simple faith. People can get saved on a scrap. They can just have someone uh, tell them a little of their story and the Holy Spirit ignites it. Or they can study reams and reams and read everything C.S. Lewis has ever written or anybody else. It doesn't matter whether you're a huge reader or whether someone's just given you their testimony. Faith can be ignited in a moment and you're into the family of God. And, and all throughout the globe, no matter the language, no matter the culture, no matter what boundaries we come up against, it is this simple thing of God wants a family. And it's a family built on faith. So we've always got to remember that what we're building is, come on, we want to see thousands of people in the family by faith. That's what it's about. There's another one saved, another one come to know the Lord. There's another church planted, we're reaching that community. There's something within us that's only satisfied when we've got a bigger family for God. That's what it's about. We're not planting ideas, we're not planting a style of church or even a philosophy of ministry. Those, though, there are some things we've become convinced of, just as Paul said, you know my ways, you know what we teach in all the churches. He did have a, a plumb line, a foundation he put in for healthy church life, we believe that. That is secondary to the fact that we're, this is a family business of people who come to know the Lord through faith. See, issues of legality and identity are central 
to our faith. See, my birth certificate tells me legally what my identity is. We, we can't rush to identity without legality. So we need both justification by faith and adoption into the family. Both of those things are what it means to be part of God's family. And Abraham knew legally, he, he knew that he was, he was in God's family. We've got to major on both of those things. Our identity can be built securely when we know le- the legality of who we are. See, the Bible is our birth certificate. It's where we said, no, I believe in Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. This is my birth certificate. I've accepted him by faith. I'm in the family. And because legally I know who I am, I'm a son of God. I've been accepted into his family. I would say that most of the challenges in church life that we ever face, when you trace it all back, it's something has gone wrong with the understanding or the application of the doctrine of grace. When you really trace it all back, that, so that's why it's so important to protect it and to build on it and to say, now this is what we're about. Martin Luther again said, if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. Everything. Because that's the, that's why Paul said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, as of first importance, Christ died for our sins, was buried and was raised again. First importance, that's the foundation for everything else. So there's a corporate thing that I trust as a, 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 when we talk about our vision, we think, okay, we might think location and implementation and strategy and all the resourcing that's necessary to make it happen, of course, but let's never forget what we're actually doing, which is to bring many sons to glory. That's actually what we're all about. And we want them, because we want them to be nurtured well and mature in Christ, we want to build church well so that God's family flourishes. But the first thing is to get God's family. That's what he's after. And then there's... um, uh, another aspect to this that, that, that is a personal thing and it's about being a child of grace. So it's a family but it's in being a, a child of grace. And in verse 20 it said, no distrust made him waver. Abraham, no distrust made him waver. You know, a troubled heart, as I mentioned earlier, a troubled heart can, can cripple us in our, in our faith, it can cripple us. It, it can take all our vitality away, depending on our personality or, and our sort of the, the, the tenderness of our conscience. We're all a little bit different in these areas. If you're a little bit more melancholic, you might be perhaps a little bit more reflective and inward than if you're sort of an extrovert, sort of sanguine type person. But all of us, at times, can go through these sort of distrust. Something, something just disturbs it. And it says of Abraham, no distrust made him waver. What a, what a wonderful thought to get to a point where you think no distrust is going to undo my peace about this issue. It's settled. It's settled. I'm righteous. I'm forgiven. I'm in God's family. That's a settled issue. To, to be able to... One of the main things we do as leaders in church life is to console people's consciences. That, that's, that's actually what pastoring is. It's, it's consoling, bringing peace to troubled consciences so that they know peace with God and can flourish in life. So dealing with a troubled conscience, dealing with a wavering through distrust is one of the key things we do. So therefore being able to console our own troubled consciences sometimes is really, it's a skill we've got to learn. 
It's a skill we've got to learn because our enemy will go for this. The devil works to unsettle us about our acceptance before God. And again, quoting Luther, he says, In the hour of temptation, it can suddenly happen that by, the tr- by a trick of the devil, all the comforting texts disappear from our sight, and only the threatening ones appear to overwhelm us. Isn't the devil so good at just quoting verses at you that are completely out of context and exactly what you don't need to hear because they're not appropriate? And all and you're trying, racking your mind to think, uh, is there a verse that can help me? And you just can't think of anything. Even Luther struggled with that. Nothing's changed. It's the same war, same enemy. So the application of grace to our own lives is like putting salve on sore skin, knowing how to apply grace to us, to ourselves. And I'll quote Luther a lot this morning, but he says, as far as practice, life and application, it is the most difficult thing there is to apply grace to ourselves. It's hard to persuade ourselves that we're completely and fully accepted in Christ. (laughs) That's a big deal. How How do I persuade myself? Well, Abraham did. He didn't waver to any distrust. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, grace, whoops, he said, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace forgives us and peace stills our troubled hearts and our consciences. The two devils who plague us are sin and conscience, but Christ has conquered these two monsters and trodden them underfoot, said Luther. Verses 19 to 21, it says, Abraham didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body Fully convinced, look at that, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And we, brothers and sisters, have got to work hard at learning how to maintain that fully convinced standing. Fully convinced, I'm fully convinced, I'm righteous in the sight of God through the free gift of justification through the shed blood of Christ. I'm fully convinced, I am not going to let any distrust make me waver because God has promised Jesus did enough for me and his promise is enough for me. You've got to be able to really kind of get a little bit aggressive about it to rest. Because rest comes from it's settled. It's settled. To work hard at it. The words are easy. But in temptation it is the hardest thing possible uh, to be persuaded in our heart that we have the forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone, entirely apart from any other means in heaven or on earth. I know how often... I suddenly lose sight of the rays of the gospel of grace which have been obscured for me by thick dark clouds. In other words, I know how slippery the footing is even for those who are mature and seem to be firmly established in matters of faith. It doesn't matter whether we've been Christians a few weeks or many, many years. This issue must be settled again and again and again when we face times of it being perhaps under under some degree of dispute in our hearts. And so, um, how, how to try and help us with this? Well, I, I, quite, I find that preaching and communicating the doctrine of grace is, is, is one of the hardest things to do well 
But it's one of the things that if, if you're a preacher or you communicate uh, the Bible in any way to people, uh, we've got to work really hard at this uh, to take what can seem complicated and make it as simple as possible. And I think what some of the great preachers, I, I mean Spurgeon's a particular favourite of mine, but if you read uh, loads and loads of Spurgeon stuff, he's always so good at finding little illustrations just to unpack something so complicated. I remember reading one once uh, where he was just talking about the vastness of God's grace and he said, it, uh, paraphrasing him, he said, it's a bit like when you watch a swallow flying and skimming over the water and it just dips and it fills its mouth with the water of the lake beneath it and that little bird's stomach is filled with this fresh water, he says, but there is a vast lake as yet untouched by the little creature. And he's sort of saying, and I just kind of thought, wow, God, you are so huge. Even when I'm so full of you, it is but a little swallow's mouthful of what there is. Now, that illustration just suddenly unlocks something, doesn't it, in a way that is just so vivid. And so I try to think when it comes to the doctrine of grace, I look for illustrations, I look for things, and I found, again, something uh, that our good friend Luther came up with, and I'm going to just develop it a little bit, just to try and help us, because I found it helps me, and, um, and perhaps it will, will help you. The first thing to say is these, about these issues is in 1 John chapter 2, and I will just um, make, make a, a little slight diversion of a point here about the context we live in, 1 John 2, 12 to 14 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Right, so this basic kind of but profound thing that every child, every child of God needs to know. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There's something foundational, a settled matter that we need to get sorted out. All believers need to get that sorted out. But then he goes on to say this, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now there's a progression between knowing a fact and knowing a person. You get it? And I think that is not something we learn from books. That's something we learn through a journey. Because he writes to children, then he writes to fathers. Now you don't go from a child to a father overnight. There's a whole life that takes place for that a designated sort of identity to emerge. And so we begin with, we can begin with clear facts that are true and we put confidence on the facts. But I don't know about you, but as you go through life and life has all sorts of ups and downs and joys and sorrows and we weep and we rejoice and all sorts of stuff goes on. But as we grow through that, we can get to the point where we say, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. You know him. Now that requires application and attention, right? It requires attention. And I've been reading uh, this book recently by uh, John Mark Comer. I will really, really recommend it to you. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, it's a, a quite outstanding book written by a millennial. Uh, and, he, uh, and he was a, a mega church leader and who, who sort of burned out. Uh, and he makes this point. Uh, because this, what I'm saying about to go from a child to a father requires constant attention through many years of learning to know 
not just the facts, but the person. He says this about our, the world we live in now. Because attention leads to awareness, all the contemplatives agree, the mystics point out that what is missing is awareness. Meaning, in the chronic problem of human beings' felt experience of distance from God, God usually isn't the culprit. God is omnipresent. There is no place God is not. And no time where he isn't either. Our awareness of God is the problem. Our awareness of God is the problem. And that is acute. So many people live today without a sense of God's presence through the day. And we talk about his absence as if it's this great question of theodicy. And I get that. I've been through the dark night of the soul. But could it be that with a few said exceptions, we're the ones who are absent, not God? We sit around sucked into our phones or TVs or to-do lists, oblivious to the God who is around us, with us, in us, even more desirous than we are for relationship. This is why I harp on about technology, at the risk of sounding like an overzealous cult leader with spittle on his beard or a fundy Luddite with an axe to grind, I fear for the future of the church. There is more at stake here than our attention span. Uh, Now, you think, well, what's that got to do with what we're saying here? Well, we don't grow in our relationship with God without attentiveness. Now, attention and time are different. You might think, well, I'm a bit short of time today. Okay, but you can still give God attention. Attention and time are different. They're different things. They often go together. But we can live attentive to God even if we're in pressed time. And I think to get hold of the doctrine of grace, just to bring it back to where I started, we have to live very attentive to relationship with God, to cultivate what is true. So we move from statements of fact to experiential relationship. You get me there? There's there's something about attention that's really important. Now, um, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 7, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he uses lots of illustrations of a farmer, an athlete, and a soldier, and all sorts of things. And then he says this, he says, Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord himself will give you insight into all this. So he's saying, Timothy, I'm not just giving you some information, I'm giving you something, and I'm asking you, reflect on it. Give attention to this. For God himself won't just give you more information. He'll give you insight. There's something that has to happen in us where to have courage to rest in the grace of God, we have to really, can I put it this way, work at letting grace really become strongly um, present with us. There's, There's effort required. So, let me just give you a few, a few uh, thoughts here. Now, um, if we can have the first picture up. Um, there we are. Now, you see that uh, ring there with this beautiful stone in there. Um, I found this really quite helpful uh, image that, again, um, I found in something that Luther said. He said, being a Christian, three things are joined together. Faith, Christ and acceptance or imputation of righteousness. Faith, look at the picture here when I say this, faith takes hold of Christ and has him present, enclosing him as the ring encloses the gem. 
And whoever is found having this faith in the Christ who is grasped in the heart, him God accounts as righteous. This is the means and the merit by which we obtain the forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Because you believe in me, God says, your faith takes hold of Christ, whom I have, whom I have freely given you as your justifier and saviour. Therefore, be righteous. Thus, God accepts you or accounts you righteous only on account of Christ in whom you believe. So he's saying, as we by faith grasp Christ and say, Jesus, you are my righteousness. That very act, that very act of faith is what makes us completely justified in the sight of God. Nothing else we ever do. There's nothing meritorious of works or law or anything that makes it simply grasping Christ like a ring grasps uh, uh, a beautiful jewel. And what's even more glorious about it is in Ephesians 2.8, it says this is a gift, uh, righteousness is a gift um, of faith, and even that is not of yourselves. So you can imagine it's a bit like God is the jeweler who is moving the little clasps of gold in our hearts over the jewel. So even the faith we find to believe in Christ is a gift, a gracious gift that Jesus gently works in us. Maybe sometimes we come to faith in an instant. It's like all the clasps go on at once. Other times it can be years where God's gently just beginning to fold and gradually giving. We have more of an Emmaus road than a Damascus road experience. There's, there's different ways. But the thing is, in Christ we've got this jewel that by faith we've grasped hold of. Do you see the image there? Now I find that really helpful to me when I'm perhaps in a a troubled state regarding conscience or perhaps I've said something wrong or done something wrong or I don't feel very as if I can lead anyone anywhere. And you think, oh Lord, what have I got to give anybody? Well, I think of that and I think I have a jewel in my life that's been placed there by faith. And that jewel credits me as righteous. I'm a winner before I start. That matter is settled. That's settled. Now, there may well be a bit of polishing of the gold that's necessary, but the fundamental value and, and solidity of, of, of that, that uh, jewel in the gold is, is set, is settled. I have to become good at telling myself that. So I'm at peace. So when sin troubles me, I look to Christ who is the victor over law and sin and death and know that his rule, his His law, the law that now is above the other law, the law that Christ died on the cross for me, that is the thing that now liberates me. So the law of sin and death is gone, the law of life has been given to me. Christ has done it, it's a settled matter. The law will constantly tell us we've sinned and therefore we face judgment and separation from God and death. But you know what? There is now another law that has overridden that one. And it's just as strong. And it's a law that says he's died a death in my place so that my sin and my death are now cancelled out because they were legally laid on him and he paid for all of it. It's gone. It's finished. I need to preach that to myself. 
Corinthians 9, it says, Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And what I have to do is to hold him tight, hold him central, trust nothing but him, don't trust the law or the work, or even my works of love, even my service for him. That doesn't add anything to it. You know, if we never did anything else for God ever again, it wouldn't diminish this righteousness that's been given as a gift. We don't earn it. And I want those grace muscles stronger in my life to hold him more confidently because as we move into bigger levels of vision there will be bigger devils and they will always go for the same things so we need to know how to fight well one more little illustration from Luther uh, using uh, he says uh, he describes it like uh, the bride and Christ are faith alone and Christ alone Uh, And he says, we must keep the works of love and keeping the law out of the bedroom. Christ and the bride in the chamber. Everyone else out. He says, the bridegroom Christ must be alone with his bride in his private chamber. And all the family and household must be shunned away. Later on, when the bridegroom opens the door and comes out, then the servants return to take care of them and serve them food and drink. Then let works and love begin. He's saying we've got to get this right, folks, that it's us and Christ, this beautiful foundation of grace. And that leads to then being certain about our identity. I I just love this quote from Packer. I just think it is just one of the most wonderful things uh, ever written. (laughs) I really do. In his book, Knowing God, he said, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm craven on the palms of his, of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his att- attention distracted from me. There's no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort. The of comfort that energizes be it said not enervates in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and love and watching over me for my good there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me there is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see and I am glad and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself which in all conscience is quite enough there is however equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and he desires to be my friend and he has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose it's extraordinary it's extraordinary that because of our legality Christ the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all that's legally done 
Because of that, our identity is now utterly secure. We're children of God. We have a heavenly Father. We're heirs of Christ, heirs with Christ. We're um, offspring of Abraham. These are wonderful, wonderful things. If we have just the next slide up, just to quickly illustrate this. Um, You'll see on there that the diamond ring there is made, I think, more beautiful by the fact that there is a black background to it. I'm struggling with this. Uh, It just just pinged off. Um, I'll carry on. Um, One of the things that I think makes us more... uh, Thank you. Makes us more... I mean, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. And if we, even if we have a very black background to our lives, when you put the diamond of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for you and for me, on that black background, it just stands out more magnificently, doesn't it? It just, the attention is not drawn to the black background, it's drawn to the beauty of what Christ has done. That helps me whenever I feel bad about myself. I think, Lord, no matter how black the background, there's a diamond that is just so glorious. And I can rest. It's a settled issue. It's settled. And then the last uh, picture, just as we come into land. Now that, uh, I am told, is the most expensive ring in the world. It is the pink star. It is 59-carat diamond and sold, uh, well, it was last sold for $83 million. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a big ring. And when I look at that, I think in uh, of Romans 4.13 where it says, um, the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. The promise to Abraham and his offspring. That's us was that he and we would be heir of the world. You know, the world is in such turmoil at the moment. It's broken, it's dysfunctional. These are dark days when we need the beauty of Jesus to shine more than ever. Do you know what? There's going to come a day when all this world, this groaning, yearning world that is longing for its liberation, one day God's going to make it all new. And heaven and earth will merge in this beautiful recreation, this new creation, and we will reign with him. And what God is about is bringing something together in his church more glorious in the earth than any big diamond. This is going to be the most glorious thing. God is about a great work in the earth. Yes, the dark will get darker, but I'm firmly convinced from scripture the light will get lighter. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be established as chief among the mountains. God's church is going to become so influential across the world that even in the face of great persecution, difficulty and and setback and all sorts of turmoil in the world, both things will be happening together. Wheat and tares growing at the same time until the end, we know all about that, there's kingdom now and not yet, all that stuff at at the end, we are about seeing something come to glory that Jesus died thinking about Abraham never fully saw it, he was looking for that city which was the church, he was looking for that city and he never quite got there because it wasn't his time to fully inherit it then 
That's what God is doing in the earth, and we're part of it as his sons and daughters. We need to settle those issues of, of legality and identity. I'm part of this glorious thing that God is doing. He purchased me with his blood. I'm precious to him. You are precious to him. One last uh, little, I'll give Luther the last word, because he always, he always usually did have the last word, so it's appropriate, he, appropriate we give it to him now. Um, and he said this, Therefore, let us fortify ourselves with these and similar statements of Paul. When the devil accuses us and says, You are a sinner, therefore you are damned, we can answer him and say, Because you say that I am a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. No, I say, for I take refuge in Christ who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me as you try to frighten me by showing me the magnitude of my sins and to plunge me into anguish, loss of faith, despair, hatred, contempt of God and blasphemy. In fact, when you say that I'm a sinner, you provide me with armor and weapons against yourself so that I may slit your throat with your own sword and trample you underfoot. You yourself are preaching the glory of God to me, for you're reminding me, a miserable and condemned sinner, of the fatherly love of God, who so loved the world that he gave his only son. You're reminding me of the blessing of Christ my Redeemer. On his shoulders, not mine, lay all my sins, for the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and for the transgressions of his people he was stricken. Therefore, when you say that I am a sinner, you don't frighten me, you Bring me immense consolation. Praise God. Amen. So let's just stand together. I just want us to pray. And perhaps the band will come back. I think, uh, yeah, got a little bit of time. Now, I'm aware that pretty much everything I've said, you've heard many times before, you probably preach it very regularly, I'm quite sure many of you preach it far better than I have, that is completely irrelevant. What is important is this, is it a settled issue for you? Is it a settled issue that legally, you can stand here today and say, I am completely forgiven. All my past sins, all my present sins, even my future ones, have been laid on him. It's a settled matter. I can have the courage to rest. So that whatever else is going on in my life, all the storms of other stuff, and we'll get onto that through the rest of this day, how we navigate the complexities of life. Whatever else is going on, there's a settled foundation to everything else. That our consciences never ever need to be troubled through or waver. They never do. There is, there is ample, there is ample birth certificate confirmation here for us. So let's just lift our hands to the Lord and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit just to confirm and strengthen us. Because this is a work of the Spirit, it's not a work of my words, my words are just words. We need the Holy Spirit to do what he did when he brought us to Christ. 
which is to strengthen us and establish us in the faith. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do what only you do, which is to put those little clasps of faith around the gem that is Christ. Just be working in our hearts, giving us a stronger, firmer grip on Christ today, so that even if we came in and the stone was a little bit loose and we thought, oh, is it going to drop out the setting? That God strengthen us in our inner being so that we can say, I have courage to rest in this finished work of Christ. I've entered the Sabbath rest of God. Nothing will ever disturb my identity or my legal standing before Christ. Even when I sin, I am reminded of the fact I cannot save myself, but I need a saviour. Praise God. We have a saviour big enough to deal with all our brokenness, all our twistedness, all our failure, all the times we mess up and again and again fall into the same problems. Praise God. We have a saviour who on whose shoulders all our iniquity was placed. It was put all on him. He died the death we deserve. He was uh, he was crucified. He breathed his last in the same way we should have done, but he rose again, giving us life we never should have had. Praise God, we are found in Christ this morning. We are in Christ. Let's